Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hi, folks. Welcome back here to uh, Colorado is where I'm at, United States of America. It's still the United States, isn't it? I check every week. Uh, but, yeah, welcome back. Appreciate you folks joining us here again. Let's see here. What happened this week? Okay. Well, first of all, I thought I would talk a little bit about something that you guys have heard a lot about already, but I, I, I can't pass it up. I'm sorry. It's the low-hanging fruit, and... <laughs> It's the uh, FBI report. Well, it's the Department of Justice report that came out on Thursday, which surprised me when I heard that it was ready. I figured it would be Friday before they put it out. You know how the Friday afternoons late in the day are usually where they bomb these things out of there. And but they didn't. And it's not exactly a helpful report to to Joe, as you've probably heard from others. Uh, the New York Post had the best uh, best take on it, I thought. And I, I put that up on the website at uh, the Rick Wagner show dot com. And, uh, was that, uh, you know, Biden willfully kept classified info would come off as an elderly man with poor memory at trial, scathing report says. So they give the reasons why they don't charge him. And of course, the main reason they, they seem to be in there is that coming up with the willful part of this, right? Because there's always a mental state associated with almost all crimes unless they are purely strict liability. And so they're, what they're essentially saying is we don't think we could prove he had the mental state. When he kept these, that he willfully kept them, or which, by the way, if you think about it, it's ridiculous. I mean, as I as I said on the website, he had documents that he had obtained from the time that he was in the Senate, and a senator has absolutely no right to declassify information. I'm sure you've heard that. Neither does the vice president; only the president. So he had things that he wasn't supposed, seriously wasn't supposed to have, uh, since what? Who knows? Uh, 2009, 1996. Who knows? The guy spent most of his life, you know, lounging around in some political office. So you know that he's, uh, obviously had this stuff for a long time. And so th- this defense to me doesn't come off very well. He, he, look, when he had this stuff in the Senate, was he an elderly gentleman with a poor memory? Like I said, sure, he was incompetent. We know that. That uh, his IQ, not a smart guy, but that's not the point. You know, when it, taking this stuff from the Senate and now that he's older, what they, there is no defense. The only defense would be, we used to call it the soded defense. Some other dude did it. You know, that, that would have to be the defense. As I didn't bring those things out. And stuffed them in my garage and at, uh, the Biden Center of the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, I, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Somebody else did it. That's really about the only defense you have going back to the time he was in the Senate. They seem to be taking the stance at the Department of Justice that given his mental state now, he probably could just wandered out, you know, he thought maybe it was a cocktail napkin that he had or, you know, that he was going to take something and get some ice cream and he needed something to, you know, wrap around the cone. And he just didn't know what he had. Okay, let's say that's true. 
but not when he was a senator, not when he got all this other stuff. And you can tell when the stuff came out, you know, it has a date on it. And you can tell when he was in the, quote, skiff. They like saying that, by the way. The news media loves to say, well, they removed it from the skiff, the skiff, 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 skiff. Yeah, that's just, it's just a term of, you know, it's like the way they want to call the, uh, official vehicle for this, for the president, you know, the big glimmo, the beast. When apparently no one else calls it the beast, but they like to call it the beast. So they love these terms. A skiff is just a secure area. That's, it's an acronym. It's a secure area. It's usually in a building where you remove all of your, Electronic devices, uh, you usually cannot take anything to write in there with them, so you can't take notes, and you're put in there with a file or files, and you are supposed to read them and leave them there. This is not a hard thing. This does not require a great deal of instruction. You know, it's not like you got confused. Uh, what, leave them, I didn't know what they meant by leave them there. Okay, uh, maybe you could do that now, but I think he's always known better. And didn't care. Remember, and this is the funniest thing of it, that one of the things that they found was a recording from night, from 2017. Uh, the ghostwriter, who was a person that wrote his book apparently at that time, because we don't, he didn't write anything. And it was three months after he left the vice presidency. And he has a recording where he says to this ghostwriter, that he still had official records because, quote, I didn't want to turn them in, close quote. Well, that's fascinating. And, of course, everyone's asking, how is this so different from Donald Trump? Well, what they're trying to say is Donald Trump had a subpoena and wasn't cooperating, and so that's completely different. It's not real different, especially when you put it up against the fact that this guy has documents that he doesn't have any argument about that he was supposed to have. He wasn't the president. He couldn't declassify them. What are you doing with them, period? So it's kind of a uh, kind of a screwy deal. And if you look at the pictures, and if you go to the my website, click on the one from New York Post, they have the photographs of them in his garage. <laughs> and they're just boxes sitting out. They have, they have circles on them. One says, uh, storage closet containing Senate documents. <laughs> And then another one that's just a box, you know, not a very well-maintained file box. doesn't even have a top on it. Garage box containing Afghanistan documents. Okay. And uh, there's a storage closet containing Senate documents. And then there's <laughs> – it's just, it's just ridiculous. And it's really, I think, upsetting people. And to be, to be fair, it wasn't, a, it wasn't like they completely covered up for him. They essentially said he's too off-kilter and unable to – figure out what's going on that they couldn't prosecute him. Well, now the White House, of course, they're disputing that. We have we have a lot of problems. I, I read the White House statement. Rather, I listened to the White House statement. And it was really difficult because they said, we're glad, essentially, that you know he, they, there was no criminal wrongdoing here, and he's always cooperated and so forth. However, we disagree with several of the extraneous remarks and uh, findings in the report. So, in other words, we like the report, the parts of the report that say, I'm not going to jail, but... On the other hand, I don't like the reports that say that I'm too incompetent to be uh, prosecuted. So, you know, I'd like to I'd like to change that. Okay, um, you know, so it's it's really it's kind of funny, not for us, but it is kind of funny. They're they're going to do nothing here about changing things with Trump. 
Now, the president, uh, President Trump, has called for the tr- charges to be this dismissed since, you know, he has all these documents. They refuse to prosecute him. He doesn't have any reason to have them. They're just, you know, it's kind of saying, oh, well, you know, old, it's just old Joe. This is what you get in Washington about this guy all the time. When they finally get cornered on something that they can't wiggle out of, that he he's just lost his mind over or that he's wrong on or he's just plain lying about, which he does quite a bit, or that he's has conversations with people that have been gone, and I don't mean gone from the room, I mean gone from, you know, the life, uh, all the time. He's always saying that. Now, this last week, remember, he had a uh, conference, uh, you know, with uh, Francois Mitterrand uh, several years after he died. He died in 96 uh, and he, I think he was uh, talking about being, talking to him in 2017. He, he could have a Ouija board. We don't know. But he also mentioned that after January 6th, that, uh, he went to this conference and he discussed the situation at January 6th with Helmut Kohl, the, uh, Chancellor of Germany. Well, that's another kind of interesting one because Helmut Kohl had been dead for five years. So, and, uh, Angela Merkel, was the uh, Chancellor of Germany at that time. So, once again, you have a president that apparently has one great talent. He sees dead people and can talk to them. Now, I wish he would talk to somebody interesting. He might try talking maybe to Thomas Jefferson or Alexander Hamilton or George Washington. Ask them, you know, how am I supposed to be doing this job? Maybe you could get some advice. And apparently, that sort of conversation doesn't come up. It's too bad, because it might help him out. It's ridiculous. What a country. Now, folks, at least we know. I'll be back. Okay, folks, thanks for sticking with us there, where we uh, railed on about the, uh, <laughs> the same thing everybody else was railing on all uh, the end of the week here. Although, I, I would say that the one of the most interesting things to uh, look at after this uh, report about Biden that came from, you know, his Justice Department, who hasn't done anything seemingly against his will, is the uh, reaction on the left. It's just hilarious because they want to compliment a small part of the report that, well, they found he did no wrongdoing in this and that. The problem is that whenever they get into that, the next question is, yeah, well, they're saying he probably did do some things wrong, but... They didn't think they could convict him of it because people would think that, you know, he didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> and that's not the message that they're looking for. And so they're out there just pounding around. And if you if you read the websites like I do once in a while, it's stuff. Look, I, I wade into those fever swamps on your behalf. Okay, fine. I, I think they're funny sometimes. If you look at them, they don't really know what to do. It's It's really surprising. Usually they have some sort of coherent message. They haven't come up with it yet. They don't have a coherent answer. And, you know, him going out Thursday night into that just disastrous press conference, which was really, if you haven't watched it, you, you need to, you need to see it. You know, I mean, he did everything he could to sort of reinforce what uh, the report had said about him. And, you know, the report is 345 pages. It's not like it's a couple of sheets of paper. And I guess uh, it would be interesting to read parts of it. I don't know how you could sit and read the whole thing, but I guess somebody must. I don't find Biden that interesting. 
at any rate, as I said in the first segment, get on the website, uh, therickwagnershow.com, and then click on the New York Post story about it, and it'll take you to the pictures of his garage that are even more revealing than the pictures we've seen before. It's it's pretty interesting. And having him go off on the reporters on Thursday night, particularly since in the past he hasn't had anything but softball questions except for the occasional one from Peter Ducey. And I was surprised to watch Peter Ducey from Fox on Thursday night sort of uh, dancing around it at you know, Hannity, uh, and I think also, uh, oh, so one of the other hosts I was asking him, you know, well, don't you think he was angry? I mean, I think Jesse Waters asked him that of all people. And he was like, oh, I don't think he was, you know, he was, uh, he was doing what he thinks needed to be done. And I was like, I, I, did you watch the same thing? I mean, you were in the room, right? And I just th- thought, well, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're one of the people and you want to get called on there, I guess you don't want to go on and just rail about him. And also, the clips sort of speak for themselves. And it was just, uh, well, it was it was unnerving, is the thing. I mean, if you just try and take your politics out of it, I mean, the fact that we're Americans and it's our country, and just look at it as if you were looking at some world leader, say, from uh, Skaristan or someplace like that, and this is what you saw, would... Would you think that those folks were kind of in trouble? I, I think you would. Now, when you stir in just the news anymore, after seeing that performance, you realize, yeah, you're right. You, we really are in trouble in just a lot of different places and in a lot of different ways. The crime factor out there. And I do realize when you when you read various accounts in news media about crime that it is incumbent on the media to make as much as possible out of the crime, because that's how they get you to look. So if there's crazy, scary criminal activity going on, they're happy to stick that out there because you're gonna gonna read it. I mean, I do. I mean, even though I, I look at it and I go, oh, that's in you know New York City, it's got nothing to do with me, but I still read it. And so it gives you kind of a slanted view of criminal activity in general, but. I'm beginning to think that it's not as slanted as as we would like it to be, really. I think it is fairly a common problem almost everywhere. I think it's sort of a reflection of sort of a national broken windows problem. And those of you that remember, that was uh, the Giuliani approach when he was the mayor, was that if you let little crimes go and say, well, we don't have the manpower, we're only going to respond to big things, well, then everything begins to have a feeling of instability and that there is a societal breakdown. And, you know, broken windows, petty crimes, uh, people wandering out in the streets, jaywalking all over the place, uh, you know, just the whole sort of breakdown of the social order starts feeling that way. Yeah, is there, are there any serious crimes being committed with those things? And not particularly. But they create an environment, they incubate an environment that leads to more and more violent crimes and danger. I, I just think that's clear. That if you if you don't address it at the base level, you can't address it at the top. It just happens again and again when you look at crime. And I think now, with all of these things that are happening in the major cities, Democrat major cities, and us hearing about them, that it certainly creates an impression amongst almost everybody, including criminal elements, that they don't have to watch the news very much or even hear much about it 
because it's so prevalent, that nothing is going to happen to you if you go berserk and start stealing things out of a Walgreens or whatever, the case, because it sounds like everybody's getting away with it. And you also get this feeling that there's an error of permissiveness now because it's happening all over the place. And then so that fosters that, doesn't it, that permissive error. It's a little bit like raising kids, isn't it, is that if you think you just let them get away with all sorts of things uh, and then are surprised when they just keep escalating, then you haven't been paying attention to kids, pets, or anything else. Now, no one's suggesting that you would have some draconian approach to everything where there's one set of rules and everything else is, you know, wrong. There's always a little leeway in there. But, you know, everybody, societies, just like people, need guardrails. They need some sort of point that they're heading to. It's not all a free-for-all. I think there's one of the most disturbing things to most humans is to be put in a directionless environment where it just seems like random things are happening all the time and they don't even have to be dangerous before people feel danger because we don't like that kind of environment. And when you pick these random things and they are dangerous, think how much it escalates everybody's feelings there and unease. And when I talk to people and when I see people interviewed and this and that, there is an unease in this country now. People are uneasy about what's going on. Now, part of it's what we're just talking about. Part of it, I also believe, is the inability for most of us to see where this is headed. And I've spoken this many times before about how kind of disturbing it is that you, know, you can't, I can't anyway, come up with two or three scenarios that I think are most likely going to happen based on what's happening now. Like I've said before, it's a little bit like looking at one of those magic eight balls. I keep turning it over and it keeps saying, future cloudy, ask again later. And when you keep turning it over and it keeps saying that, it begins to make you feel unstable. That Not you personally, but it feels like you're on unstable ground. And humans don't like that. We want to have a little bit of surety in our lives. And when you feel like that, Randomness and chaos are reigning supreme. People don't function very well in that. And we, it's true. We also don't function very well in a super-ordered, over-policed society. You know, a police state where everything not required is prohibited. We don't function well in that either. But we, we do need relative safety and purpose and the way things are going now it's hard to maintain those and you don't know what to do in the future even with a career for your children or things like that there's just so many question marks floating around out there and i i think that's of concern to parents and it really is a a sad thing to see for like our gen z friends and so it's no wonder they feel so lost why wouldn't you i mean there, there doesn't seem like anything to hang on to and even the traditional things we have in, in place for a society, like this is your role and this is uh, the definition of the sexes and this is uh, meritocracy and this is how we move forward uh, based on who does the job best and things, those are all sort of feel like you're going into the, into the trash. Those are basic pillars of human interaction. 
You can't start kicking all those out from under people and expecting people to feel good about it. And then we start to see, and I don't think I'm imagining this, there's a lot more chaotic environment out there in terms of what I believe is just incompetence. Because we seem to be in pursuit of things that have little meaning in areas that require a lot of thought, like airline pilots and deciding that diversity is more important than competence. That's a great example as far as I'm concerned. It, when you start realizing that we're no longer choosing things on very important terms, rather very important things, with approaches that don't address the job itself. Thanks, it's very All righty, all right, we're back. Thanks for hanging around, as usual. I wanted to get back into some of the things that I thought we should be talking about this week, other than the same things, which is just really hard to ignore that stuff. I mean, you know, we could talk about it all day. (laughs) Everybody else is, but it's just, you know, it's kind of what it is. I wanted to bring up something that one of you listeners out there had uh, asked me about. And by the way, I don't give out this enough, but the email here is rickwagner at mail.com. And so you can send me stuff too, and I, I don't get able to answer everything, but I do read everything. So uh, I wanted to get that out there again. I don't I don't put it out there enough because the people that have had it have had it for a while, I think, and then I just forget to do it. Anyway, so what they'd asked me, and this was, I thought, was was a deep think question, was how is changing the statute of limitations so that Donald Trump can be sued for something that happened in 1996, perhaps after, well, we don't know if it happened at all. Uh, he doesn't think it did. In 1996, when the statute of limitations had run out on bringing that cause of action a long time ago. As most of you know, a statute of limitations is a limitation on actions that you can bring in court based on a certain passage of time. Now, there's some exceptions to this, you know, that, quote, toll the statute of limitations, you know, if a person's out of a jurisdiction or there's some things like that. But for the most part, there are some years in there, and if you don't bring that, either charge someone criminally or bring your suit in a civil court, then you're barred from ever bringing it because you're bringing it outside the statute of limitations. The idea, of course, was that you didn't want to have people trying to defend themselves against things that happened who knows when or if they even happened. good example with Trump is that things are so far back, right, 30 years, something like that. How, how can you possibly say that you didn't do it? Now, we all know that you are innocent until proven guilty. We also know that lots of times jurors don't necessarily believe that. They think you should put some kind of evidence on, right? That uh, And if you can't remember, but the person accusing you claims to have a good memory of it, then it, it starts to get to be really just finger-pointing. Now, we do know that in New York, with poor Donald Trump, is every time he gets drugged into court there, you already know what's going to happen. And this thing in this latest civil action, it's a very, very ridiculous verdict. And the evidence, when you just listen to it, there isn't any. 
It's just an accusation. But anyway, so how did they get into court with something that old? Last year, year and a half ago, the New York Assembly passed a another statute that opened the statute of limitations up, just did away with it for all intents and purposes, for certain kinds of cases, and they brought it open for a year. In other words, you could bring a lawsuit over something that had happened decades ago that normally would be time-barred if you brought the action within this specified period of time that they opened the door. And there were many people that thought that it was put in place mainly to get Donald Trump because of who did it and the way they did it. Now, they did have some unfortunate things for them as there were some Democrat lawmakers that uh, had some of that same thing brought against them. But for the most part, it felt like it was aimed at President Trump. So how is that not an ex post facto law? This was the question the listener asked. And I thought it was, I thought it was pretty interesting to look at the Constitution. Now, the Constitution, if you look at Article 1, Sections 9 and 10, prevent individuals from being prosecuted for actions that weren't criminal at the time they were committed. That's an ex post facto law. There's also the Bill of Attainer in there, too, which you hear, and then you kind of think, what does that mean? Well, a Bill of Attainer is essentially a legislative finding of guilt. In other words, that a legislature puts together a, a bill that says, Tom over here is guilty of something, and they all vote on it, and then that's it. He's guilty of that and gets punished for it. Can't do that in the United States. At least not yet. So that's a bill of attainer. Ex post facto laws are those, as we say, that try and go back and criminalize something for the most part that were not criminal at the time or increase the penalties on things such that they're more than when the time was com- when the crime was committed. So if you committed a crime that the sentencing was five to ten years at the time it was committed, and in the meantime, the legislature has raised that to ten to fifteen years, the sentence that can be imposed is one that was in place at the time of the crime. Now, many times it works backward the other way, where you're given the benefit of the new statute if it's less but you can't make it more. So it it does feel like you've made a statute, made a change that allows someone to be, if not prosecuted criminally, to have a civil action brought against them when that had already lapsed. In other words, it no longer existed. So it, it is a narrow thing. But for the most part, what you see is that the courts are more interested in criminal pieces of this. The civil side, they're not as interested in because it's not as damaging. You don't have this finding of guilt, per se, and punishment by the state. It is essentially a redress of wrongs, as they like to think about it. And so the courts have looked at this in a different way on that. They found that extending or reviving a statute of limitations, especially of civil cases, doesn't necessarily violate the Constitution. They found the distinction by finding that statute of limitations are procedural, but not punishment, and that ex post facto laws are mainly examined for those that change punishment. 
they believe, and I think this is once again a narrow interpretation, but that statute of limitations regulate the timing of when legal actions can be brought rather than defining conduct as criminal or imposing you know, retroactive criminal consequences. So that is the difference, and that's why what they did in New York by opening up, essentially doing away with the statute of limitations for a year and let you bring anything, and then at the end of that year, the old statute of limitations comes back in, is not necessarily a violation of the ex post facto law. It's, it feels like it, doesn't it? I, I think it continues, despite the fact that the courts have been very interested in it only in a criminal context for the most part. I think it feels a lot like retroactive punishment. You can call civil actions, you know, a redress of grievances or so forth, and that is in fact really what they are, but it's still punishing. And you still have the same problems where someone is unable to defend themselves because of something that happened so long that time has just passed. Now, if you're Joe Biden, that time could be just a couple of days. But for most people, when there's someone getting picked on for 10, 20, 30 years ago, they don't really have much to say about it. And if the other person makes a lot of claims and they seem relatively sure and the jury likes them better and so forth like that or whatever the case may be, uh, that that is, in effect, to me, a monetary punishment. So I, I'm very dicey on that whole interpretation, but that's what the, that's what the courts have, have done. And we will see how this whole case plays out when they appeal that verdict. I, I just don't know. The whole lawfare thing against Trump and everybody that he's associated with is shocking. And, of course, it dovetails with what we were talking about earlier with Joe Biden, where you know his mishandling of classified information, documents, and so forth, certainly seems to have been a shade of criminal conduct. Certainly, if you use the same interpretation as you do Trump. With Trump, as I said earlier in the show, they they keep trying to say, well, it's different because he refuses a peanut and he did this and that. Okay, well, that's what the obstruction charge is, which I also think is baloney. But that's not what the mishandling of the documents is. I mean, Biden clearly did. He, I mean, he, he doesn't even have an argument that he's supposed to have a lot of those documents because he had was a senator. So it's really a way out. And no matter how much the left complains about the characterization of Joe Biden as essentially not competent for trial, I mean, that's really almost the way it reads, that's not really an out, per se, unless you want to find him just non mentis and can't, can't stand trial. In which case, you have a real problem with being president. I mean, we already have a real problem with thing that just with what's happened now. So that's the difference with the statute of limitations. I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. And, you know, there's a couple other things that, you know, we've looked at this week that I thought were emblematic that we, well, I, you know, one of them that I find disturbing, and some of you may know about it already, is this Hawaii Supreme Court has essentially said that there isn't an individual right to bear arms. Now, some of you out there, are, well, many of you out there, are very astute in this uh, constitutional argument. You might be shaking your head and you say, hasn't, hasn't that been decided uh, by the United States Supreme Court? Well, yes, it has. 
The first case you might remember is that District of Columbia versus Heller, you know, where they explicitly, I mean, they explicitly recognize that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to arms. And they had another case, McDonald v. Chicago, a couple of years later, which they applied to the Second Amendment to the states, specifically through the 14th Amendment, which is what the 14th Amendment did, is it specifically said, look, everything in the Constitution applies to the states, not just to the federal government. Seems like that ought to be pretty good. And then you had this case in 2022 that a lot of you are probably aware of, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. Uh, they said the right of the people to keep and bear arms extends beyond the home. And if you're going to have any kind of regulation of it, you have to have some historical precedent that sort of is in line with the historical meaning and uses that people have had about firearms and the Second Amendment's interpretation. That seems pretty straightforward. Now, in Colorado, they are already trying to craft legislation to make all sorts of sensitive areas out there because there was some language in the Bruin decision that said, well, you know, that states can designate things as sensitive areas. And it's not what they really mean is like courthouses. That's always on their mind and things like that. But New York, of course, tried to make pretty much everything in New York, at least the city of New York, you know, a, a sensitive area. And those cases are probably not going to stand up. Colorado's trying the same thing because we have, if possible, people just as dumb or dumber in our legislature as uh, they have in New York. And they're trying all these sensitive areas. I was reading a list of them, too. There's a, there's a bill out there right now uh, in the Colorado legislature to try and do that. We'll see how far it goes. You know, but it's it's out there, and they're trying to copy California and who has also adopted something like that recently and is going to have probably some Supreme Court issues as well. But those cases pale in comparison to what Hawaii has done. Hawaii pretty much thinks that those cases that we just talked about were wrongly decided. They, they think that the Second Amendment does not have the same meaning and weight as like the Fifth I mean, and the Fourth and the First. And that it doesn't go to individuals, but that it is a collective right. Now, that was decided explicitly in Heller, 2008. The Hawaii Supreme Court says Second Amendment involves a collective right, which is relevant only for the context of militia service. What? There's not an interpretive problem here. The United States Supreme Court has settled that issue. Then what they've said, this is a case you can look up called uh, the State v. Wilson in Hawaii. And they're just pretty much openly challenging the U.S. Supreme Court, saying that it's a collective right, even though we have the Supreme Court decision that it is not. And you can cite the uh, your own Constitution. And what they did is they went to the Hawaii Constitution. And I'm looking here, I think it's Article 1, Section 17 of that which is almost identical to the Second Amendment. But instead of interpreting that the way Heller did and the other cases following McDonald and Bruin, they decided they were going to take the Constitution of Hawaii and interpret it differently. And so they've interpreted that to be a collective right. Now, I'm reading here, you know, this this case involves a guy who's arrested December 2017. Give you some idea how slow these things move. 
and he was publicly carrying a twenty-two caliber pistol in his front waistband. He said he was carrying it for self-protection while hiking. And this was in Maui. The prosecutors in Maui charged him with three firearms violations. Okay. Now, I'm going to read here. It's a great article that I pulled up. Uh, Hawaii Revised Statute requires that all firearms be confined to the possessor's place of business, residence, or sorsion. In other words, with them right there when they're traveling, not when they're walking around doing things. It only has three exceptions. Unloaded firearms in an enclosed container under certain circumstances for hunting or target shooting and for a gun owner who has a license to carry, which is pretty much impossible in Hawaii. They just they don't want to do it. They just don't give them out. I mean, there may be a few, but very, very few. And so he said, look, uh, these laws fly right in the face of uh, the McDonald, Heller, Bruin decisions. And so they took it up to the Hawaii Supreme Court. And Hawaii's Attorney General asked uh, the court to, uh, says that, Bruin does not stop states from requiring a license before bringing a, a firearm to a public place. Yeah, I think it kind of does. <laughs> it, it really does permit that un- unreasonable amount of restriction. And it says Hawaii's historical tradition. This is just, they're just mixing this whole thing up. They just, they just put those three decisions we talked about in the United States Supreme Court into a blender and are mixing them up. So, okay, fine. Uh, well, let's talk about Hawaii's historical tradition. Well, that's not what the Supreme Court said. It said the country's historical position. Not your hamlet or island, whatever the case may be. And to say nothing about the way you're interpreting it. And they said that that history in Hawaii did not support a constitutional right to carry deadly weapons in public. The justice who wrote this, named Edens, uh, he goes even further, I'm reading here, saying conventional interpretive modalities in Hawaii's historical tradition of firearm regulation rule out an individual right to keep and bear arms under the Hawaii Constitution. Let's just stop there for a second and remember that a lot of something you a lot of you guys are saying, the Constitution of the United States is the supreme law of the land. What that means, and and many of you know this because you understand the Constitution doesn't grant you rights. It protects rights that you naturally have from the government interfering with them, just to get that clear. But at its core, what the Constitution says, particularly with the application of the 15th, 14th Amendment, excuse me, is that states can not interfere more with your rights. There's several things like this than the United States Constitution allows. It's the final arbiter of those. It's very clear. There's all sorts of law on that. We'll go back to Marbury v. Madison type cases. And so for Hawaii to come out and say this ludicrous stuff is really disturbing. Uh, and, th- I mean, th- that Bruin decision said those public safety balancing tests that they've been using, it just rejects it. It's right there. Uh, and this, this is what's kind of funny. They, they, uh, here we go. Here's what he says. Uh, he's talking essentially, you know, that the Constitution is not a suicide pact. Remember, I've heard that before. 
We believe it is a misplaced view to think that today's public safety laws must look like laws passed long ago. Smooth, more muzzle-loaded, and powder and ramrod muskets were not exactly useful to Colonia-era mass murderers. Yeah, but they were pretty darn useful to people defending themselves. See, it's just, it's just nuts. And life is a bit different now in a nation with a lot more people stretching to islands in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and then uh, this Edens is writing, it quotes a, uh, the thing about the old days, they the old days, which uh, the author of this article I'm reading in Reason said that that's actually a quote from the uh, uh, TV show The Wire, which is all about drug dealers. So this is actually much more interesting and much more concerning than what we've seen with these attacks from the left on the way that Governor Abbott and Texas is interpreting the Constitution, that they have a right to self-protection. Because at least the Constitution of the United States says that, and we talked about this last week, says that the states have a right to protect themselves, essentially if the federal government is unable or slow to respond. That's what Abbott's saying. So you can at least talk about the interpretation, and there's there's no cases on point that says that that's not true. Texas' problem is that the cases that are out there have to do with the control of the border predominantly or really uniquely by the federal government. That's what those cases. So he's getting around the border issue by trying to say, well, look, we're not trying to you know, enforce the border. We're just trying to stop illegal aliens from coming into Texas because essentially it's an invasion. And in, and we have a right under the U.S. Constitution to resist an invasion if the federal government doesn't get here to help us. That's at least a decent argument or an argument. This thing that Hawaii's did is just saying, no, we just think you guys were wrong you know, out there in Washington, D.C. Apparently uh, they think that distance out there in the uh, Pacific Ocean somehow... Uh, means that they don't have to follow the Constitution of the United States. It's a, it's very concerning. And we have we have a lot of this going on when we see sanctuary cities that essentially are saying we don't have to follow the law of the United States. But it's those are statutes. But it's another thing to see a state Supreme Court say, well we don't have to follow the United States Supreme Court when it comes to interpreting the Constitution. And like I said, they try to dodge it by saying, well, we're going to interpret the Hawaii state Constitution. Well, here's a, here's something you do know, I think. If you don't know, you should just resign, is that anything in the Hawaii Constitution that runs counter to the U.S. Constitution is invalid. I have to keep our eye on this in the future. You guys have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon.